0: We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 26. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is the word of God.
1: Amen. Thank you, Meredith. So I don't... I know this world we live in, nobody watches live television anymore. It's all streaming and Netflix and Hulu and whatnot. And and I don't know if you guys are like me, but the other day we were watching some show in May and a Halloween episode came on. And it just feels weird, right? Like, this doesn't belong here. This is out of season. This is not what we're about. This is not what we're doing. It doesn't quite fit. It's weird. Or maybe you're watching a show and it's summer at home, but on TV it's snowing. And you think, that's bizarre, that's strange, it doesn't fit. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you all, okay? Uh, that's how I have felt about this passage all week, okay? That, that it has been one of those situations where I've been able to rationalize it, this passage, understand it, but man, it just hasn't felt like it has fit in our place in time. So the, the information of our passage, Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 26, fits in Luke. It does. But as we've been moving through Luke, this particular passage seems out of date with our culture's current place in history. It feels like a Halloween episode in May. Okay? Now, in our culture today, we don't think about demons very often. And and when we do, we tend to acknowledge them as something that is distant. We can recognize them as real, but they are far away. Like celebrating a holiday out of season. Okay? What we need to see is that these are real. There's no question about the reality of of demons. But to to me, it, it I struggle. I struggle to make it feel like our present reality. Now, there's probably most of you who are here going, what kind of preacher do we have? Right? Like, okay, there's a deal. I want you guys to understand, like, I'm a human. I struggle with things. And this is one that all week long has been driving me crazy. I, I would read this passage, and then I would read commentaries about it, and then I would just stare at the passage, and just kind of glaze over. I'm Like, what on earth does this mean? Where is Jesus going? How do I apply this to today? And then an hour later, I would do the whole thing again and end up back in the same spot. And what I eventually realized is that I have to remove the distance between me and the text. I have to. I kept trying to make the text say something it wasn't saying. And that that made any attempt at a coherent message feel hopelessly inauthentic. So I just said, all right, I got I to just go with it. Quit, quit trying so hard and just let the Bible teach you. Can I get an amen? amen. Quit trying so hard and just let the Bible teach you. So you see, we, we don't talk about demons very much in our, our culture. We live in in the age of enlightenment where there is a natural explanation for everything. We like to think about the supernatural when we think about healing or maybe when we think about heaven or even when we think about, I believe in Jesus. We just celebrated a baptism, right? And we talk about the resurrection from the dead. So we we think about the supernatural in those realms. We tend to think about the supernatural when it is things that are positive positive when it is God-centered aspects of supernatural power. But this passage takes our 21st century mind and forces it to deal with a 1st century reality, and that is, there are evil supernatural forces. There are! And we we don't like to think about that. But there is a kingdom of light, and there is a kingdom of darkness, And there is a war between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of dark. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's not the only place Paul talks like this. He also says this in 1 Timothy 4, chapter 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Man, the teachings of demons. We didn't cover that in seminary. We also don't talk about that very often in our Sunday school classes. 1 John 4, 4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. And who's in the world? Well, in this context, it's talking about Satan and his demons. This is a reference to the spiritual forces of evil. Now, continuing down this first century mindset and the reality of evil spirits operating with supernatural power, James says this, rather matter-of-factly, in James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now just think through, think through the book of Luke and all that we've seen, right? Throughout the book, we've seen Jesus casting out demons on several occasions. And one time, in particular, Jesus literally cast out a legion of demons in Luke chapter 8. So, so listen, here's the deal. Maybe I am transferring my hang-ups onto you as a congregation. Maybe y'all aren't struggling with this the way I am. I, I don't know, but this was a hard one for me. And so I'm going to confess my weakness, okay, to you guys. And I've got a feeling that deep down somewhere, this concept of talking about demons is something that you've distanced yourself from as well. You, you know why I, I think that's the case? We just don't talk about exorcisms without raising an eyebrow, right? When somebody, well, there's an exorcism, blah, 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 or somebody's demon-possessed, we all go, oh, really, right? <laughs> oh, really. That, that's at least, I'm, I'm a skeptic. At least I do that. I, oh, really. So that's the mindset that we're bringing here. but, but So maybe you guys don't have that. But the, the thing that I want you to understand is, despite that distance, I believe, I believe that Satan and his demons are real. I always have. But my struggle has been to engage them with part of my present world. I, I don't want to rationalize them as some historic thing that only happened in the past. This passage won't let us do that. Neither will Scripture as a whole let us rationalize the spiritual forces of darkness as something that only existed in the past. So I think that one point I want to make today is that Scripture teaches us that demons are real. And it's not something that they were real. They they are real. Now, why do I, I know that? Because John, in the book of Revelation speaks of the final judgment of the demons as a past reality as he's talking about the future. So I'm going to read this passage from Romans 20. This is from the perspective of the future. He says this in Revelations 20.10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So if demons were present in the time of Jesus, and their destruction is something slated for the future, then they must be a part of our present world. Okay, this is an important fact because it helps us understand the case being leveled at Jesus. Okay, so now let's, let's start focusing back on the text at hand. If Jesus was doing miraculous activities that were observable and reportedly verifiable, then there can only be a limited number of explanations. Okay? So we have this record. What do we do with it? So so, uh, there are only a few options that I can think of for uh, the explanations of Jesus' miracles. So the first one, the first explanation for the miracles of Jesus recorded for us in the Bible is that they're just legend, that it didn't really happen. This is just a legendary story that sounded good, and so it, it's not real. That's, that's an option. Okay, second. Second option is that it's a trick, that somehow Jesus fooled people into thinking he did something miraculous when he didn't. The third option is that Jesus did indeed do miracles, but they, he did it from the powers of Satan. He did it with through evil means. And then the fourth option, the fourth option is that Jesus is who he says he was, He was the Son of God, and that the miracles he did, he did through the power of God to prove who he was. Those are our options. Now, what I want to do for you guys today is help you understand what's going on in our text and how we deal with these options. Now, the first thing I want you guys to understand is this first one here, that the miracles are legend. Luke does not let us do that. So you guys remember way back when we started the book of Luke, we looked at Luke chapter 1. We've read this passage a few times as we've gone through the story or gone through the gospel. Let's look at Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, and we'll see this. It says, And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers to the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, I think we have to look at this passage because Luke will not let us take this as a legend. That is not how he's presenting his material. Now, you're allowed to say, I just don't believe Luke. Okay, that's fine. If you reject the gospel of Luke at face value, that's okay. But Luke is not, that's not really okay, (laughs) but you get my point. Okay, so that's an option. Luke is not saying that, though. He is presenting his gospel as history. He is saying this is what happened. Legends like King Arthur, We don't even know if King Arthur was real. So this this is presented as real, as history, something that has eyewitnesses that is verifiable. So you either have to accept it at face value or completely dismiss it and not trust Luke at all because he is not presenting this as a legend. Okay, now what's the next thing? All right, This means that the only other explanation is, if if you don't believe in the supernatural, is that Jesus must be tricking people that this all must be a trick, that somehow he's fooled everybody. But in the case that that I referred to earlier of this man possessed by a a legion of demons in Luke chapter 8, this man had terrorized a community for some time. Luke Luke tells us that the, the community wanted Jesus to leave because they were so scared of him because somehow Jesus was able to overpower this man who was possessed by a legion of demons. In our passage today in Luke chapter 11, we see that the man was mute. This is important. He was mute. That is an outward sign. The people of his community would have known this man before Jesus ever arrived. And they would have known this man to be mute, which means he could not speak. Now, the Gospel of Matthew says not only was he mute, he was blind. He was blind and mute, according to Matthew. Now, he was clearly afflicted. But what I want you to understand is that, that people were able to observe his condition. So how could there be a trick in that case? So they, they would have no, this would have been like the longest con ever, right? So Jesus is going to plant this dude in this town years before to be mute so that when he shows up, all of a sudden the guy can speak. Do you see how ridiculous that sounds? This, this could not have been The case Now, if he was blind, that's another example, which Matthew says he was, another example of an outward sign. But I think there's a reason that Luke emphasizes the muteness. Now, if he was mute, then the ability to speak would be the testimony in and of itself. Think about that. The the sign that Jesus did come and accomplish what he said he was going to do, that he really did cast out this demon, the sign of that power is this man's ability to speak. So what I think happens here is Luke is focusing in on this man's testimony as the validity of the fact that something supernatural has happened. This man went from not speaking to speaking. No testimony to the testimony of the power and the words of Jesus to command this demon away. So Luke says this isn't a legend, And the people of the community marveled, is what it told us in our passage. They marveled at what Jesus had done. Clearly, it's not a trick. The community at large does not believe this is a trick. So what's left? If it's not a legend and it's not a trick, then it has to be supernatural power. And the people of that community understood that. Whatever we're seeing here is powerful. So what do they do? In an attempt to not deal with who Jesus is, they say he must be, he must be doing this by the, the, the forces of Beelzebub or the prince of demons. Okay? Now, I, I love this. They're saying, all right, this is indeed a supernatural event. We don't believe he's from God. So if he's not from God, then he has to be from the devil. Now, here's the thing. The Bible is a cross-cultural text. A cross-cultural text, which means this. It's true for us in our culture, and it's true for somebody in another culture. It's been true for all cultures over all time. It is a cross-cultural text. There are issues that seem particularly relevant in Scripture to us. There are other issues in Scriptures, like worshiping idols, that seem a little less uh, directly impacting our culture. Now, now, here's what I want you guys to see. Since this is a cross-cultural text, we have to let it say what it says because it could be speaking to another culture more than to ours. So in our Christian bias mindset, we don't really get up, hung up on the concept of evil forces doing miracles. Like for us, we go, oh, a miracle was done, it had to be God. We don't get hung up on the idea that wicked things or evil power could do something. But there are cultures that believe that evil power can accomplish things. So for them, when they see a miracle is done in supernatural power, it's totally reasonable for them to say, okay, something supernatural is happening here. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? So what I love about Scripture is it speaks to areas that maybe we don't struggle with. So as Americans, with our Christian bias, we see a supernatural sign, and we default toward, oh, it had to be God. But other people may not. They may have been like these people in the first century here who say, all right, we've got got a, a supernatural event that's happened. I don't agree with this guy. I don't like this guy. Clearly, he is doing evil. Clearly, he's doing evil. And so it's a way to distance themselves and deny the authority that, this particu- that Jesus may have, okay? So I love that Scripture is so good to answer our critics. that even, even us who may not necessarily struggle with this idea, Jesus speaks into it. that this is not a, a, um, this is not a supernatural display of evil, but a display of God's power. Let's see how Jesus manages the accusation. So there's been an accusation. You're doing this miracle by the power, Of Satan. What does Jesus say? Let's pick up in chapter 11, verse 11, oops, sorry, 17 through 20. It says, "...but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand?" For you say that i cast out demons by beelzebub and if i cast out demons by beelzebub by whom do your sons cast them out therefore they will be judged they will be your judges but if it is by the finger of god that i cast out demons then the kingdom of god has come upon you i love this what has luke been about so far through this gospel if not the coming of the kingdom And Jesus leaves this hanging out there. If I'm doing these works by the finger of God, if this is God at work, then guess what? This is a sign of the coming of the kingdom. I love this because it is important that this particular issue uh, happens, that we see Jesus confront, confront the enemy head on. All right. That this is a battle between Jesus and the spiritual forces of darkness, whether that's demons or whether that's Satan himself. This is a, a confrontation between the two of them. Okay. This is not some battle where we say, "All right, Jesus is a miracle worker who does uh, things for people's health, or he only does uh, a miracle of weather." Here we see Jesus take on a demon, and who wins? Jesus wins. Jesus has victory over Satan and his minions. What this passage is telling us is that Jesus shows, demonstrates, and claims to have power in opposition to Satan. We don't don't talk like this very much, but the kingdom of God is at hand. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. What we see here is a direct confrontation between Jesus and the spiritual forces of darkness, and he wins. And what Jesus is saying here is you cannot say, you cannot say that what I'm doing is in the power of Satan. Because my ministry, Jesus is saying, is powerful and effective, and my kingdom is marching against the spiritual forces of darkness. Just look back through the book of Luke. If you want to, you can thumb back to Luke chapter 4 where Jesus casts out a demon from a man in a synagogue. In Luke chapter 4 verse 41, it says later in that same chapter that Jesus had cast out many demons. In chapter 8 verse 2, it says that Jesus cast out seven demons from Mary of Ma- Mary Magdalene. In Luke chapter 8, we saw that legion of demons that we talked about earlier. Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10 tells us that Jesus gave power to the disciples, uh, the 12 and the 72, to cast out demons, and they did. Luke chapter 9 tells us about a boy who had a demon that some of the disciples couldn't cast out. But guess who did? Jesus did. We see this all throughout Luke. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. And in his kingdom... He is declaring war against the spiritual forces of darkness, and he is winning. So to say that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of demons is clearly indefensible. I want you to think about that. That would be like saying the Nazis planned D-Day. Okay? It, the, the thing that, that turned the tide in World War II that broke them down, it would be like saying that they did that to themselves. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus was having a powerful and effective ministry. There is no way, no way that the the enemy would do this to himself. It would assure his own destruction. And indeed, it does assure his destruction. Amen? but it's Jesus in the advancing of the kingdom that is bringing about the destruction of the kingdom of darkness, not his own self-sabotage. Okay, so what this means is that Luke forces you to either believe the testimony that he's recorded for us or not. The people were not tricked. That mute man spoke, okay? It is a fact. Just like Jesus healed the lame man uh, back in Luke chapter 5, to prove that he had the power to forgive sins. It's the same kind of thing. This man's speaking is the evidence of the power that Jesus had. And it wasn't accomplished by the power of demons, and it wasn't legend. This was the power of God. Now, after Jesus establishes himself and makes this bold claim my power is absolutely divine from God. Is not the power of the devil. He then tells two parables. And we're going to try to move through these parables pretty quick. All right, These two parables show two different realities of the kingdom of God. So the first one he tells is, is this uh, parable of the strong man. And then he tells uh, a parable about what happens if one demon is cast out. So let's look at the first parable of the strong man. Luke chapter 11. From verse 21 through 23. It says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Now put your finger there in verse 22. A strong man, well armed, his goods are safe. What we're supposed to understand is there is some power here. This is, this is a force to be reckoned with. Now, verse 22. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Okay, so what's going on? Let's unpack this parable. Well, the first strong man is Satan. This is the demons and the spiritual forces of darkness. And we need to understand that they are strong, that they are well defended, defended. The second strong man is Jesus and his kingdom. Okay, So here's the first reality about the kingdom of God that Jesus is teaching. And this is it. That Jesus is stronger than the forces of darkness. No matter, no matter how well defended they may be, no matter the armor they may have, held up in a palace, when someone stronger comes in, what happens? He takes the armor and the spoils. What we should see there is total victory. Total victory. The Lord comes in and wins, completely overpowers the first guy. Now, this may seem small or obvious to us, okay? It may be one of those things where we go, of course Jesus is stronger, But what you need to understand deep down is that this is not a fight. God is infinitely more powerful than the forces of darkness. Jesus is always and always will be the winner in a contest of God's power versus the forces of darkness. Do you hear me, church? He will always be the winner. It is not a contest. Contest. Verse 23 then becomes very important. Jesus is flipping the accusation that he is casting out demons by Satan. Jesus just made it clear that he and his kingdom are stronger than Satan. He already said, I am not with them. I am not with those demons, those spiritual forces of darkness. Now he is saying, I am better, and they are not with me. I am better and they are not with me. Jesus is saying that you are either in the kingdom and with him or you are the enemy of the kingdom and you are with Satan. Jesus is saying there's no neutral. There is no neutral. You can't be Switzerland. Okay, That is not an option. And I think this is where the next parable fits in. This idea that you can't be Switzerland. But for those of you who are are Bible scholars out there, I want to take a quick side note to address one potentially contradictory statement made by Jesus. And that is this. He says in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. Now, if you'll remember, you Bible scholars, back to Luke 9, we had this little exchange. All right, it's the same book, just a couple of chapters earlier. Luke chapter 9, verse 49 records this, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. That seems off. Jesus just said, If you are not with me, you're against me. And here he says, If you're not against me, you're for me. Is that is that what the text says? That's not what the text says. Look closely again here at verse 50. Do not stop him for the one do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. So let's just unpack this real quick, okay? Jesus is talking to his disciples about other disciples. Jesus is making a statement about other citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, this person who is claiming, is claiming the name of Jesus, All right, they were clearly a follower of Jesus, but they weren't following with this crowd. Okay, they, they, so basically John's saying, I don't know this guy. And Jesus is saying, I do. I know him. This guy is with me. You may not know him. He may not be with you, but he's with me. And if he's with me, even if he's not with you, he's for you. Because he's in the kingdom. So we need to understand that these are talking about two very different things. These are not contradictory. I wanted to bring that up because if you're reading through your Bible and you're like, well, here it says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And here it says the opposite. I want you to see how these work together. Jesus is talking to believers that are in the kingdom. Here he is making a very different statement. He is talking about himself. If you are not with me, you are against me. He's talking about whether or not you're in the kingdom or not. This is about citizenship. And what he is saying is, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, there is no neutrality. So look back at our our passage. Where does he go after he makes this statement? Luke chapter 11, verse 24 through 26 is this. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. This was the part of the text that I just beat my head against all week. Jim and I talked about it I, and I just was like, Jim said here Brandon, you make sure you teach this one before you leave town, right? And I'm sitting there scratching my head saying, what is this talking about? And, and what, it, what it's saying here is, is very simple. Okay, and this is the second reality, reality of the kingdom of God. I've already said it a couple times and that is this. There is no neutrality. You are in the kingdom or you are against it. Let's walk through this parable and see if we can begin to help it make sense. And there is no room to play the middle. Okay. Now, I'm going to go down another quick side note here because I did, I, because we're talking about demons and we're talking about supernatural forces of evil. I wanted to over-spiritualize everything. So as I'm going in this text, I'm looking there and I'm going, as it passes through the waterless places, as it passes through the waterless places, water, you know, in John, you gotta be born of water and spirit, is there something here? And like my head's just going crazy. And so then with a little scholarship and a little research and just looking at another translation, Guys, if you're ever hung up on a text, just open a couple other translations and see what can be out there because this is just one translation. You you know what's going on with this waterless places? All all it means is like arid places. It means desert. Like, it's not spiritual at all. This is a physical description. Okay, and at at this time, uh, one commentator, his name's James Edwards, he says that Jesus was drawing from a commonly held belief that demons lived in the remote wilderness. Okay, so I suppose there could be some kind of parallel between physical dryness and spiritual dryness, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but but my point is this. We don't need to get hung up on that. I don't think Jesus was making a theological statement about the home of demons as much as what Jesus is doing in a parable here is providing the fact that time passes. Time passes. That's what you need to know. Why does this demon go out to the waterless places? Because time is passing. Okay, so the demon was cast out. Time passed. He comes back. That's it. That's what you need to know. That's the big takeaway. So let's break this passage down. Okay, so a person is afflicted by a demon. There's a miracle and that demon was cast out. That person had a moment of respite. Then the situation became worse. All right, what does this mean? The first thing we have to remember is that Jesus told us he was stronger than any force of darkness. Right? Jesus is stronger. Okay, he can defeat the well-defended strongman and take his armor and his treasure. So these seven demons do not come back and defeat Jesus. Do you hear me? They did not come back and defeat Jesus. But the house is orderly. What's that mean? I think that's telling us here is there is that brief moment of rest where this person has clarity, okay? But, but is Jesus there? Is the Holy Spirit mentioned as being present? No, for all intents and purposes, this house is vacant. Okay? We might even say, as it's vacant, that it is neutral. And what happens to a neutral home? We see that the neutral house has a welcome mat for the spiritual forces of darkness. Jesus just said, you're either with me or you are against me. There is no room in the kingdom of God for neutrality. And this parable makes that abundantly clear. An empty house, a house without Jesus in it, a house without the Holy Spirit is there, ready for the spiritual forces of darkness. So jump back with me into the story of the demon being cast out. Let's look back up at Luke chapter 11, verse 15 and 16, one we skipped earlier. It says, But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept on seeking from him a sign from heaven, seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, I already addressed the first part, that Jesus isn't casting out demons by the power of Satan, but look at that second part. Others were asking for a sign. Jim and I were talking about this this week. Anybody ever ask for a sign? We've talked about that before in here. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice to have a sign? Maybe maybe a sign on the level of a demon being cast out of someone. I mean, that would be pretty powerful, right? And what do we see happen in in the life of this person in the parable? An amazing sign. They had a demon cast out. And what do we see? The house remained neutral. For a season. And then what happened? The enemy came back and the person was worse off than before. This person never believed. They had a sign and they did not believe. Man, isn't that infuriating? What do you mean you didn't believe? You had a sign and now you're worse off than before? What Jesus wants us to understand here is that ultimately, ultimately, this is a case I've been making the whole time, right? We have to take Luke at its word that it really is the testimony of what happened all these years ago or not. The kingdom of heaven is acquired by faith. Ultimately, you have to believe. A sign won't be enough. Later we're going to see in Luke chapter 16, and we'll get to it sometime in the fall, maybe, uh, the story, the parable of Lazarus. Now, this Lazarus is not the Lazarus from John 11 that Jesus raised from the dead. This is a make-believe Lazarus that Jesus tells a story about, okay? And at the end of that story, Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man is dead and in hell, and Lazarus is dead and in heaven, and the rich man says, hey, is there any way you can send Lazarus back to tell my family so that they can believe? And Abraham in the parable says, even if we send him back, they wouldn't believe. They've got the law and the prophets, and they don't believe them. Do you really think they're going to believe Lazarus if he goes back? They're not going to believe. A sign isn't enough to believe. How do I know this? Because Jim gets to preach on this in a a couple weeks. Verse 29 says this, when the crowds were increasing. This This is still 11. This is the same context. When the crowds were increasing, he, Jesus, began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. No sign will be given to it. They wanted a sign. What have they been seeing? Signs. This goes right back to where we were a couple weeks ago with the woes, right? Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. All these signs are being done and you don't believe. Whoa." What's it going to take? Sodom and Gomorrah would have believed if they'd have seen by now. Tyre and Sidon would have believed if they would have seen what you've seen. Is a sign enough? A sign is not what we put our hope and trust in. Our our, Our hope and trust is in Jesus Christ. He's our sign. His resurrection is the sign. Our hope is in what he accomplished. We have the testimony of Luke and the other saints telling us what Jesus did. And what I love, what, what I love is that Jesus interacts with and, and dialogues around some of our doubts. And one of the doubts that he takes away is that this power was done by the hands of the enemy. Ultimately, he says, this is done by by the Father, and the kingdom of heaven is advancing, and nothing can stand in its way. This whole story is an affirmation that the kingdom of heaven is something that is acquired by faith. It's not about proof, although our faith in Christ is reasonable. It's not about human power. It is about belief in Jesus Christ. When you think about what we've seen today, literal demons are being subjected to the power of Jesus. The forces of darkness cannot stand against Jesus. How do we think there's any room for neutrality? There's no room for neutrality. You're either with him or you're against him. We don't get to say he's a good idea. We don't get to say we like some of the things he teaches. You're either with him or against him. I want you to think about what that means about being with the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven doing? The kingdom of heaven is marching and advancing God's will. It is moving forward in, in, in the power of Christ, overcoming sin and death. What's that mean as we are... Citizens of the kingdom of heaven. What what is the kingdom of heaven marching against? Our, Our own sin. And the sin of the world around us. Being a part of the kingdom of heaven is saying that the spiritual forces of darkness not only will not prevail in the world out there, but it will not prevail in the world in here. That he has come and he has kicked out the strong man. And that he comes to be in us and fill us and transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is why, as followers of Jesus, we cannot continue in sin anymore. That's why he's called us to a life of repentance. Because being in Christ is joining the army of God as the kingdom of God advances and tackles and destroys the sin in the world and the sin in our own hearts and lives. That's what he's called us to. That's what he's asked us to join in. And here's the deal. The Lord does not lose. Amen? Amen. He will have victory in your heart and life, and he will have victory in the world. There is no opportunity for neutrality. You're either with him or you're against him. So as we move into our response time, that is the question. Where's your heart? Are you with him or are you against him? If you're with him, that means you're against the own sin and darkness in your own heart. And that is something you need to confess before him and ask the Lord to have victory in in your life, to change you and transform you from the inside out. If you're here and you just like the idea of church, you like the idea of Jesus, but you have not put your faith and trust in him, then you're making an attempt to be neutral. And I hope you've seen today that Jesus does not allow for neutral. If you are not with him, you're against him. And I'm not one who takes that lightly, and I don't want to be glib, but I do not want to be the enemy of God. If the supernatural forces of evil cannot stand against him, who do I think I would be to stand against him? So, whoever you are, and however The Lord, the Spirit is working in your hearts. This is our time to respond. As we sing, the altar is open. There's a chance for us to just lay our needs down before him to confess our sins. If we need to talk to somebody about who Jesus is and what it means to believe in him, then you can come find me or you can grab a believer next to you and we would love to tell you more about what it is to follow Christ. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We thank you that you do not mince your words. We thank you, Lord, that you make it clear. We can't walk in the middle. Lord, help those of us who believe to understand what what being a part of your kingdom is. Lord, help us to praise your name that your kingdom is present and advancing. Lord, help us to uh, allow your spirit to work in our hearts and lives. Lord, if there are those who are here who don't yet know you, I pray, Lord, that they would see that they can't remain in the middle. Lord, I pray that you would point them to the truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.